brought to you by the Cannabis Bee Network. Here is the Cannabis Bee News with your host, Scott Jacobs. Hello, listeners. How's it going today? This is episode CBN 068. 1-15-2014. Scroll into article number one. The Great Marijuana Experiment. A Tale of Two Drug Wars. As Washington and Colorado create rules and regulations for selling legal marijuana, in many other cities across the country, pot arrests are near record highs. Take it away. The Great Marijuana Experiment. A Tale of Two Drug Wars. As Washington and Colorado create rules and regulations for selling legal marijuana, in many other cities across the country, pot arrests are near record highs. By Bruce Barcott. Source, Rolling Stone. Legal marijuana in America is now estimated to be a $1.43 billion industry. And it's expected to grow to $2.34 billion in 2014. If those numbers hold, the 64% increase a steeper trend line than global smartphone sales would make pot one of the world's fastest growing business sectors. Signs of the new age abound. In Colorado, retail marijuana stores welcomed their first legal-age customers 21 and older on January 1st. Washington State is expecting to license the first of its projected 334 pot shops by late spring. A Gallup poll taken last fall found that 58% of Americans supported legalization, a 10-point uptick from the year before. Alaska and Oregon will likely vote to go legal in 2014. California and five other states are expected to do the same in 2016. The legalizing states aren't going in half-assed, either. Officials tasked with ramping up a marijuana regulatory system are taking to it with a tradesman's pride. We are going to implement Initiative 502, says Sharon Foster, the brassy chairwoman of the Washington State Liquor Control Board, at a public hearing last fall. The state is not going to allow it to fail. But these gains tend to obscure the dismal reality playing out in many other states. As Colorado and Washington license pop growers and sellers, Cops elsewhere continue to carry out marijuana busts at a rate of one every 42 seconds. If you drop a gram of sour diesel on a sidewalk in Seattle, a police officer may help you sweep it up. Do that in New Orleans and you could face 20 years hard labor. What we're witnessing now is a political movement giving birth to an economic awakening. The struggle to end the war on drugs at heart a movement to stop the mass incarceration of black men is creating one of the greatest business opportunities of the 21st century. At a recent drug reform conference in Denver, Drug Policy Alliance Executive Director Ethan Nadelman acknowledged the uncomfortable transition that's now occurring. Those who have suffered the most in the war on drugs and those who have struggled against it, he noted, may not be among those who profit from its conclusion. The capitalist forces at work in a prohibitionist market are violent and brutal, Nadelman said, but the capitalist forces at work in a legal market are even more brutal in some respects. We know that the people who may come to dominate this industry are not necessarily the people who are a part of this movement. That may be a necessary price to pay. For the war on drugs to end, Colorado or Washington must succeed. That will require risk-taking entrepreneurs, not movement leaders. If both states fail, it may be impossible for others to follow. Fortunately, they're beta testing two distinctive ways of regulating legal pot. For now, Colorado has a simple vertically integrated medical marijuana industry where retailers grow and process most of the pot they sell. Colorado will have a flexible limit on the amount of pot that may be grown. Washington, on the other hand, 
is breaking marijuana production into a three-tiered system that mimics the alcohol industry, where growers sell to processors, processors sell to retailers, and retailers sell to consumers, and the state strictly caps the amount of pot that can be grown. There are other quirks. Colorado allows small-scale home cultivation. Washington does not. Colorado gave existing medical marijuana MMJ, operations first priority for adult use licenses. Washington didn't, forcing MMJ owners into a license lottery with newcomers who've never grown or sold a single bud. It doesn't much matter which system works, as long as one does. Then we'll be able to mark 2014 as the year control of marijuana passed from drug cartels and weed dealers to government inspectors and shopkeepers. In the weeks and months before New Year's Day, a.k.a. Legal Day 1, Colorado's marijuana industry was running like a well-oiled machine. To get a taste of the nation's first state legal system, I spent a day last fall with Trip Keber, the walking and talking embodiment of marijuana's future. Keber is a balls-out, no apologies, empire-building capitalist. In 2010, the 45-year-old former real estate developer founded a company called Dixie Elixirs and Edibles. Dixie makes THC-infused soda, candies and baked goods and sells them to medical marijuana dispensaries across Colorado. In just three years, Keber has built Dixie into one of the industry's leading brands and now has ownership stakes in 17 cannabis-related companies, including 3MMJ America dispensaries that are about to become adult-use retail shops. As we roll through Denver in Keber's Black Ford Expedition, he can't stop pitching his vision of the glories to come. In Colorado, 100,000 patients drove a $300 million medical marijuana industry last year, he says. Now think about the adult use market. Studies show that about 10% of the public has a relationship with cannabis. 10% of Colorado's 5 million residents, that's half a million people. We get 60 million visitors every year. Even if only 5% of those tourists make a purchase, that's 3 million people a year. He lets the numbers sink and we're talking about hockey stick growth, he says. Wall Street analysts believe there are going to be two or three billionaires minted in this industry in the next 10 years, he says. I'm not saying I'm going to be one of them, but this kind of opportunity comes around only once in a generation. We pull into a light industrial district in South Denver. Smell that? Keber says. Cannabis. One of Keber's main grows is housed here in an unmarked 25,000-square-foot warehouse. Inside, Jake Salazar, CEO of MMJ America, walks us through a sophisticated operation run by a dozen technicians, rooms blazing with computer-controlled light, temperature and circulation systems, every potted plant tagged with a unique UPC. We're going at full capacity to get ready for January 1st, Salazar says. Craig Kloppenberg, the company's compliance officer, stops by to check the latest transport manifest. Every bit of the plant is tracked through barcodes, he says. We record wet weight, stems, leaves, buds and waste. Without those barcodes, adult-use pot probably wouldn't exist. Four years ago, Colorado's medical marijuana scene was a picture of mayhem. With no state or city regulations, there was some pretty sketchy stuff going on, says Sam Conneen, a professor of law at the University of Denver who researches marijuana policy. Robberies and gunplay were not uncommon. DEA officials suspected that some shops were supplied by international drug cartels. Colorado cracked down in 2011 with rules that require dispensary owners to register with the state, pass criminal background checks, pay taxes, install security systems, grow 70% of their own product and carefully track the inventory. State officials weren't worried about maximizing tax revenue. 
It was all about making it easy for them to regulate the industry, says Henry Wachowski, a former federal prosecutor who now operates one of the cannabis industry's leading law firms. Vertical integration eliminated the need to deal with multiple entities in the chain. The new regulations purged the industry's bad actors, who couldn't pass the background checks, and small-timers, who couldn't afford to scale up. Only the strong and the clean survived. When regulation came into play, we had everything together, Jen Cole tells me. Cole, 45, owns the farm, a boulder dispensary that's widely seen as a prototype high-end cannabis shop. Everything in the dispensary is upscale and female-friendly, polished wood floors, antique display cases and no-bro culture swag. I knew the importance of a bookkeeper, she says, and I have paid taxes on every gram I've ever sold. Even so, the transition wasn't easy or cheap. We had a number of lean months, she says. Two years under these strict rigs has left Colorado with a well-audited MMG industry. So when adult-use pop went legal, the first retail licenses went to dispensary owners already in the system. It took months to get my medical marijuana license, Kevber says. For our adult-use permits, I was in and out of the interview in about 30 minutes. Near the end of our day together, Kevber joins the Dixie Elixir's marketing team in the company's new manufacturing facility in East Denver, where marketing director Lindsay Jacobson, 31, unveils four designs for Dixie's new aluminum soda bottles. Colorado's adult-use rigs require opaque packaging, so the company's glass bottles will soon be phased out. We're still playing with the color, says Jacobson. We're aiming for sophisticated but fun, without being too young. Too young, of course, is the third rail for a company like Dixie Elixirs. When adult use goes live on January 1st, the eyes of the world will be watching Colorado, and anything seen as marketing to kids could undermine the entire movement. There are a lot of ways this could go wrong, Kameen later tells me. A rise in DUIs, increased child access, diversion across state lines, and some criminal elements slipping into the regulated side of the industry. It could be as simple as a tractor-trailer full of marijuana stopped a mile across the Utah border. That would not be good. Jacobson turns the conversation to the beverage's THC content, 75 milligrams. Colorado and Washington aren't just rolling out a regulated marijuana industry. They're opening two of the largest psychotropic dosing experiments ever conducted. Both states have limited marijuana-infused food and beverages to 100 milligrams of THC per package. The numbers roundness is a dead giveaway. When it comes to dosage and what adults can handle, nobody really knows. There seems to be a big difference between smoking, vaping, eating and drinking in terms of how much THC hits the bloodstream. But the science isn't there yet in terms of knowing what an appropriate limit might be, says Mark Kleiman, the UCLA public policy professor who advised Washington's Liquor Control Board on its marijuana regulations. It's not there, of course, because the government has made it virtually impossible to study marijuana. So we end up with a limit of 100 milligrams per packaged brownie. A couple of weeks after shadowing Trip Kebber, I hop in the car with Pete O'Neill, an independent businessman looking to get into Washington State's pop game. O'Neill once ran a comedy club in Fort Lauderdale and a high-end pet grooming salon in Manhattan. Now he's starting CNC Cannabis Company, a retail pop enterprise that names a nod to Cheech and Chong. Even though the state isn't accepting license applications for another two weeks, O'Neill has already leased two storefronts outside Seattle. The state limits license holders to no more than three shops, to prevent market consolidation by a few big money players. They tell me I'm crazy to try for a license in the city, but I'm tempted to go for it, he says. Even though Seattle supported more than 100 MMJ dispensaries in 2012, 
The Liquor Control Board is licensing only 21 adult-use pot shops in Seattle about the same number of state-run liquor stores that served the city prior to 2012, when the state got out of the booze business. So those licenses are looked upon as 21 golden tickets. But even Seattle City Attorney Pete Holmes has complained about the limit. The demand is greater than 21 stores can handle, he said recently. The idea behind legalization is to bring this into the regulated sphere. To do that we need to be able to tell consumers, we have a legal supply, that's where you should go. To enter the license lottery, retail applicants had to show the Liquor Control Board a commitment for a lease by December 20th. In the weeks prior, the streets of Seattle were crawling with pot entrepreneurs seeking rentable space. A storefront isn't legal unless it's at least 1,000 feet from a school or daycare center. It's a gambler's role. If you don't win a license, you could be stuck with lease payments and no store. O'Neill has been tipped to an existing MMJ dispensary in North Seattle that was regulation compliant. He's asking $100,000, O'Neill tells me. But why would a dispensary owner sell out now? Good question. The rest of the country may think that Washington state is relaxing its marijuana laws. In fact, it's tightening them. Washington never brought its MMJ industry under regulatory control like Colorado did. There's no registry, no security laws and no tax requirements. The MMJ folks are having to go through the growing pains that Colorado already went through, says Allison Holcomb, criminal justice director at the ACLU of Washington and author of Initiative 502, the ballot measure that cleared the way for legal pot in 2012. Right now many of them have a business model that doesn't involve meeting regulatory requirements or, for some, even paying taxes. That provides a really nice profit margin. Now they're entering a system where competitors may have more business savvy, and they may not be as profitable. Because the state views dispensary owners with some suspicion, the Liquor Control Board isn't giving them first option on adult use licenses. But, of course, even this is subject to uncertainty. In an interview last month, Washington State Liquor Control Board Chair Sharon Foster tells me that eight months of conversations with medical users had softened her stance. I'm not nearly as cynical as I was about abuses within the MMG industry, she says. I think research is going to prove the great importance of this little plant. We have to carve a place for that within the system. The state legislature, she says, may solve the issue later this year by passing a new law for MMJ patients. That law could allow medical users who may need greater volumes and potency special privileges within the adult use industry. There's no guarantee that existing dispensaries will survive, though, and some owners are selling out while the selling's good. At the North Seattle Dispensary, the owner greets Pete O'Neill warmly. So you're looking for a 502, huh? He says. O'Neill scopes the space. Upstairs is a one-room dispensary. Downstairs are a handful of spindly pot plants. I'm asking $175,000, the owner says. O'Neill pokers his expression. The price buys neither the building nor the land, only the right to take over a $2,800 monthly lease. The listing said $100,000, says O'Neill. The owner nods. The guy down the road just sold his MMJ for $125,000. He's not even zoned 502 legal. So I figured. O'Neill passes on the deal. A few weeks later, he leases a storefront two blocks farther south, paying three times the market price to beat out two other marijuana concerns bidding on the space. Real estate and regulations aren't the only worries for an entrepreneur like O'Neill. The price a pot will dictate profits. Top quality weed currently retails for $250 to $300 an ounce. 
over the long term, though, that could drop by as much as 80% prior to taxation if legalization takes hold, says Rob McCoon, a professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley who studies marijuana laws and markets. That's good for ending the black market, but low pot prices contain their own sets of worries, said marijuana taxation expert Pat Oglesby, former chief counsel to the U.S. Senate Committee on Finance. If it becomes producible at $20 a pound less than $1.25 an ounce, said Oglesby, and you don't tax it pretty heavily, then you have to worry about the leakage rate that is, smuggling across state lines and the political reaction of the soccer moms. Cheap pot is bad for state coffers, too. Washington State's pot scheme contains the highest marijuana taxes ever submitted to the voting public. The state takes a 25% bite at each level of its three-tiered system, and has estimated it may rake in some $400 million a year. The challenge state policymakers face is to facilitate what Kleiman calls the Goldilocks price a tax influence number that's low enough to starve the black market but high enough to discourage a spike in consumption. You don't have to beat the street price, just come close. Most people want to abide by the law, says Holcomb. If you give them a chance not to be a criminal, they won't be a criminal. There's one other factor, Washington is capping its initial weed crop at 2 million square feet. That's 45 acres, only enough marijuana to satisfy about one quarter of estimated statewide demand. The idea is to avoid a surplus, which might encourage out-of-state smuggling. Retailers can import from out-of-state, so when the weed's gone, it's gone. Which means prices won't be coming down anytime soon. The gains made in Colorado and Washington tend to obscure the dismal reality still playing out in many other states. In 2012, there were 749,825 marijuana arrests in America. We're not talking about dealers moving weight. In New York and Texas, the states with the most marijuana arrests, 97% of Pondo arrests in 2010 were for simple possession. Over the past decade, as police departments around the country adopted New York City's data-driven cop stat policing model, Pondo arrests based on stop and frisks became an easy way for precincts to pad their numbers. Queens College sociology professor Harry Levine brought the problem to light in 2009 when he discovered that during the previous year the NYPD made more Pondo arrests in 12 months than during 18 years under Michael Bloomberg's three mayoral predecessors. In an interview in the New Inquiry last year, Levine described the nation's arrest overreach as a scandal on the order of Love Canal and the Ford Pinto, horrific situations, harming many people that go on for years before being revealed. Ezekiel Edwards, director of the ACLU Criminal Law Reform Project, spent nearly a year mining data on the racial makeup of marijuana arrests. The ACLU found that black people were 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people. This at a time when white and black marijuana usage rates are virtually identical, about 12 to 14 percent. That racial disparity has grown worse with time. Over the past decade, the white arrest rate for marijuana possession held steady, around 192 arrests per 100,000 white people. Meanwhile, the black arrest rate skyrocketed. In 2001, it stood at 537 arrests per 100,000 black people. By 2010, it had climbed to 716. Going into the project, Edward suspected the numbers might be bad. But not this bad. We knew about racial disparities in New York, he tells me. We didn't expect to find racial disparities everywhere, urban and rural, 49 of the 50 states. Only Hawaii had a nearly even black-white arrest rate. The war on marijuana, Edward says, has been a war on people of color. To understand what those numbers mean on the ground, you only have to visit the American Marijuana Gulag that is the state of Louisiana. 
New Orleans, of course, famously welcomes and celebrates Bacchanalian debauchery. But Louisiana lawmakers take a perverse pride in maintaining some of the harshest marijuana laws in the country. One joint can get you six months in the parish prison. Second offense, up to five years. Third, up to twenty. Bernard Noble is one of many caught in the trap. Noble, a 47-year-old truck driver, relocated his family from New Orleans to Kansas City after losing his house to Hurricane Katrina in 2005. In 2010, he returned to the Big Easy to visit his father. On October 27, two cops spotted Noble riding a bicycle down South Miro Street. They ordered Noble to stop and frisked him. They found a small bag containing less than three grams of marijuana. An Orleans Parish jury convicted Noble of marijuana possession. Because he had prior felony possession convictions, Louisiana law called for a mandatory minimum sentence of 13 and a third years. It doesn't matter how much or how little marijuana is involved, Donna Widenhaft, Noble's public defender, tells me in Louisiana you can get twice as much prison time for marijuana possession as sexual battery. But 13 years for 3 grams? It seemed insane. Moved by Noble's record as a providing father, the sentencing judge took pity and handed down only five years in prison. Only. Outraged by the nickel, Orleans Parish Dalian Kanitsaro Jr. appealed the ruling. Kanitsaro wanted the full 13 years. And after three appeals, he got it. Earlier this year the Louisiana State Supreme Court declared that a judge could waiver from mandatory minimums only in exceptional cases. And Bernard Noble, the court ruled, was entirely unexceptional. You might think this is a horror story, but not in Louisiana, says Gary Wainwright, a defense lawyer with two decades of experience in the Orleans Parish Courthouse. We've had people receive sentences of natural life for marijuana here. Louisiana imprisons more of its residents, per capita, than any other state. In many parts of the state, the parish county prison is the largest single employer. You can run a prison without inmates, says Wainwright, and the easiest way to keep the jails full is to arrest black men for pot possession. Marijuana today is a crap-scale industry. It may not say that way very long. Bigger players are waiting in the wings. In the past year, Alan St. Pierre, executive director of NORML, the nation's biggest marijuana advocacy group, has met half a dozen times with representatives of the beer, wine and liquor industries. They've talked about the coming legalization of marijuana and what it will mean for the sector of what St. Pierre calls problematic adult commerce. The NORML leader didn't ask for those meetings. The booze people came to him. It's easy to assume that big tobacco and big alcohol are licking their chops at the emerging marijuana industry, waiting for their chance to scoop up a massive share of the market. In truth, it's not that simple. Tobacco, St. Pierre tells me, has production and distribution channels that could easily absorb cannabis. But they don't have the Dionysian background, he says. The alcohol guys, they're in the pleasure business. They know how that works. Beer companies are the most likely first movers. Beer sales have been slipping in recent decades, as more Americans move up to wine or cocktails. Their customer seeks an inexpensive, low-level buzz. Here's one way to think about it. At the end of the week, the beer consumer has 20 bucks in his pocket. He can spend that all on beer, or maybe he buys a six-pack and a gram of pot. I think they'll be happy to sell you both, says St. Pierre. Alcohol companies also have excellent working relationships with state lawmakers and regulators. That's no small thing. Legalization rides on the growing belief that marijuana should be treated like alcohol, not like heroin or cocaine.
For the feds to go along with these pilot projects, they need assurance that state officials can turn pot into a product as tightly regulated as beer or wine. As it turned out, fate blessed the legalization movement with two governors prepared to offer that assurance. Governor John Hickenlooper D. Colo and Governor J. Ensley D. Wash could have obstructed or delayed implementation of the adult use laws. Both opposed it during the campaign. But once the voters spoke, both governors chose to heed the will of their citizens and carry out the laws. To do that, they would have to persuade U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder to allow their risky experiments to proceed. Holder, like President Obama, was not a man inclined to give a stone or a break. For the past five years, the Attorney General has left marijuana enforcement in the hands of local U.S. attorneys, who acted as drug czars in their own jurisdictions. Some dispensaries got raided, others didn't. If Holder didn't want legalization to proceed, he could dispatch the DEA and quash it overnight. Starting in January 2013, state officials fed the Department of Justice a continuous stream of updates on the construction of their regulatory systems things like security regulations, seed-to-sale tracking systems, background checks and leakage safeguards. The success of Colorado's 2011 MMJ regulations was a key selling point. Message, we can handle this. In March, Senator Patrick Leahy DVT offered Holder political cover. If you're going to be because of budget cuts prioritizing matters, I would suggest there are more serious things than minor possession of marijuana, he told the Attorney General at a Senate hearing. Leahy also teamed with Tea Party darling Rand Paul Arkai to introduce legislation calling for reform of federal mandatory minimum sentences in drug cases. The Leahy-Paul bill represented a signal moment in the beginning of the end of the war on drugs, the alliance of drug reform Democrats with libertarian Republicans. Holder saw an opening and took it. He and Obama are well aware of the toll the war on drugs has taken on black communities. In a little-noticed mid-August memo, Holder ordered federal prosecutors to back off on mandatory minimums in low-level drug cases. That was a good sign. But Holder remained mum about state legal pot. Through back-channel talks with the office of John Walsh, U.S. Attorney for the District of Colorado, Hickenlooper's staff had an idea of what federal officials were most concerned about leakage into other states and the 1,000-foot rule, mainly. Neither governor had any indication of Holder's leanings. But they had hope. During various meetings with federal officials, we were never told, forget it, you're nuts, recalls David Postman, Inslee's communications director. Finally, on August 29, the Attorney General placed a noon conference call to Hickenlooper and Inslee. In Denver and Olympia, a coterie of staffers gathered in the governor's offices. Holder came on the line and spoke about his decision, a green light. His office sent over a four-page memo prepared by Deputy Attorney General James Cole. The key passage, in states with strong and effective regulatory and enforcement systems to control the cultivation, distribution, sale and possession of marijuana, federal officials would largely allow state and local law enforcement to address marijuana-related activity. The operative term was control. For the past 76 years, that word had been prohibited. The feds didn't abandon their authority over marijuana. The Cole memo said that for now, federal law enforcement agencies would step back and let state and local officials proceed with their pilot project in cannabis control. The staffers in the two governor's offices held their breath as Inslee and Hickenlooper thanked the attorney general. Then they hung up. There were no great hurrahs or backslaps in Denver or Olympia. Just relief that nearly a year's worth of work had not been in vain, and a feeling of confidence that the system each state had designed was going to work. Marijuana is legal in Colorado and Washington, at least until President Obama leaves office in January 2017. 
the two states have exactly three years to show the rest of the nation that a safe and sane post-prohibition world is possible. Article number two, Marijuana Tourism Seeks Acceptance in 2014. Take it away. Marijuana Tourism Seeks Acceptance in 2014 by Eric Gorski. Source, the Denver Post. The dawn of pot tourism in Colorado will bring shuttle buses to the state's first recreational marijuana shops, guide sharing their stashes with out-of-staters and watchful eyes at ski resorts and Denver's airport. After months of speculation, the opening of the nation's first recreational pot shops Wednesday will provide early signs of whether marijuana tourism is legitimate and worthy of investment or overstated and damaging to the state's image. At least three pot-themed tourism companies that didn't exist a year ago are preparing to welcome their first visitors of 2014 and trying to figure out how state and local regulations will influence their plans. The state tourism office is keeping its distance, while the ski industry is assuring guests the slopes are pot-free and the air is clean. Marijuana industry officials estimate 30% of recreational sales made possible by Colorado voter-approved Amendment 64 last year could be made by out-of-state visitors. But there are limits. While Colorado residents 21 and over may purchase up to an ounce of marijuana at licensed pot shops, out-of-staters may purchase only a quarter ounce at a time. And marijuana cannot be taken out-of-state. We've had a lot of interest, a lot of curiosity, a lot of buzz, said Peter Johnson of Colorado Green Tours a travel agency seeking to cater to a luxury crowd. Johnson's company will take guests in limos and SUVs to newly opened stores and private grow operations. Guides are cannabis aficionados who share their supply with guests for no charge, Johnson said. We are professionals in the travel business, said Johnson, 39, who has worked as a stock trader and tech entrepreneur. We are not a bunch of stoners trying to have a party. Timothy V, owner and operator of Colorado High Life Tours is going after budget travelers. For $99 a person, the company offers a Napa Valley wine tour, but with marijuana. The day trips include guided tours of retail stores with stops at tourist spots like the Mile High Step at the state capitol. Afterward, everyone gets a Mile High Club sticker. V said he expected a clientele of young adults, but so far his 50 or so clients are mostly baby boomers and retirees. To address concerns about his drivers getting high, the 45-year-old V said that inside vehicles he is using vaporizers, which heat up marijuana and deliver the high without secondhand smoke or much smell. Under Colorado law, it's illegal to have an open container of marijuana in a private vehicle or consume pot on public transportation. State law is not entirely clear about whether passengers in limousines, tour vans or tour buses can smoke marijuana. The Colorado Clean Indoor Air Act prohibits smoking marijuana in any limousine or other vehicle that holds itself out as available to the public. Those certified by the State Public Utilities Commission may meet the description. The law provides an exception for limousines under private hire but does not define that term. The state's new open container law for marijuana, meanwhile, provides an exception for backseat passengers in vehicles designed, maintained, or used primarily for the transportation of persons for compensation. My 420 Tours, which launched before April 20th, Pot's Big Holiday, has eight tours scheduled through April, with the first on Wednesday co-owner Matt Brown said. There are a lot of people who just want to see who want to see what is behind the door, he said. The day one plan is to ferry visitors to pot shops and a party called Cannabition, which was scaled back and moved because of uncertainties about whether it runs afoul of Denver restrictions. Brown sees pot tourism at a juncture similar to where medical marijuana dispensaries stood in 2009 a new industry in search of clearer regulations. 
if 2013 ends and 2014 begins with things seeming wildly out of control and flagrant violations of the intent of Amendment 64, I think we'd get more severe, crackdown-type rules, he said. The Colorado Tourism Office is not budging from its stance against promoting pot tourism, Director Al White said. Our position is there is a whole lot more to do and see in Colorado, he said. We are not going to change that platform. It's too early at this point to understand what kind of impact it will have. Visitors to Colorado spent $9.4 billion in the state in 2011, the office says. Richard Scharf, president of Visit Denver, warned before the 2012 vote that legalization would damage Colorado's brand and could result in fewer conventions and leisure tourists. Two weeks ago, Visit Denver officials toured a Denver dispensary at the invitation of the Denver-based medical marijuana industry group. Visit Denver spokesman Rich Grant said the city's convention and visitors bureau remains unconvinced about pot tourism. Visit Denver needs the best return on investment, and marijuana tourism has no track record, he said. Grant said the city has yet to lose any conventions from groups citing the passage of Amendment 64. Colorado ski resorts are reminding guests through emails and signs that public smoking of marijuana is illegal, said Jennifer Rudolph, spokeswoman for the industry group Colorado Ski Country USA. She said resorts are telling visitors that resorts are a safe place to ski and ride and to enjoy the mountains and the fresh air. Most Colorado ski resorts are on U.S. Forest Service land, and federal law prohibits all marijuana possession. In a memo last summer laying out expectations for recreational marijuana in Colorado and Washington, the Justice Department identified keeping pot off federal land as a priority. At Denver International Airport, officials plan to begin enforcing a new policy soon prohibiting possession of marijuana on all airport property, spokeswoman Stacy Stegman said. After Amendment 64 went into effect, airport visitors could carry an ounce or less at the airport as long as they weren't going through security, she said. Flying with marijuana including medical marijuana is not allowed because pot possession is prohibited by the Transportation Security Administration, she said. Stakeman said city-owned DIA chose to bar all possession and display of pop to eliminate confusion and make the same rules apply to all. The airport has discretion to set such rules under state law and city charter. On other city property, possession of marijuana is legal, but it cannot be displayed or transferred. Stakeman said the airport will add decals on sliding glass doors and signs stating the rules. Violators may be fined up to $999. State Republican Dan Prabhuan a Denver Democrat who sat on a task force that recommended rules and regulations for recreational marijuana, said tourists should know the state has set limits, including prohibiting driving while stoned. It's a cautionary tale at the very least to those who think this is just a free-for-all state, Pabon said. It's definitely not. With little more than word of mouth, the Cliff House Lodge and Hot Tub Cottages in Morrison has become a destination for visitors who enjoy marijuana as tourists or use it as medicine. Angela Bernhardt who with her husband manages the historic inn, said tobacco smoking is prohibited in rooms not so subtle code words. On the back porch, surrounded by privacy fences, guests routinely partake in pot smoking, she said. It's been happening for years, and there's a huge market for out-of-state tourism coming in, Bernhardt said. Shutting down any of it is stupid. This is like being at the forefront of a movement. Article number 3. Investing in marijuana stocks is a lot more dangerous than smoking marijuana. Take it away. Investing in marijuana stocks is a lot more dangerous than smoking marijuana. By John McGilling. Source, Quartz. One of the byproducts of Colorado's recent decision to legalize weed has been a boom in the prices of stocks linked, however tenuously, to the marijuana industry. 
a handful of smaller companies, listed on over-the-counter markets where liquidity is thin and there are no real quality standards needed to secure a listing and not on the more reputable NYSE or NASDAQ exchanges, have seen their share price soar since the beginning of the year. And for no discernible reason other than the fact that marijuana is now on sale for legal recreational use in Colorado, and soon will be in Washington State. HAD has pushed the market values of such companies to not insignificant levels. Medbox, the biggest, which sells automated vending machines with fingerprint readers that could be used to dispense pot, briefly crossed the $1 billion threshold last week, but has since retreated. The sudden explosion of interest in weed stocks even prompted FINRA, Wall Street's self-regulatory organization, to last week warn investors about the potential for scams and frauds. It noted that some marijuana companies Hawkett didn't name them had been employing well-known tricks used in stock scams, like frequently changing their names and business focus. For instance, one unnamed company had promoted itself through sponsored links and spam email, and by issuing more than 30 press releases during the first half of 2013, all of which painted a rosy picture of its health, despite continued financial losses. Another unnamed low-price stock now claiming to be in the medical marijuana business had changed its name four times in the past 10 years, FINRA said, while yet another had recently switched from the coffee business to focus on the rapidly emerging medical marijuana industries. Possible fraud aside, what's indisputable is that marijuana stocks remain highly volatile hawk in the sense they're much like all penny stocks. The intraday performance of Medbox since the turn of the year illustrates this. So, while you might no longer be fined or arrested for smoking pot in certain places, you can still burn a serious hole in your wallet by investing in it. Article number 4, Washington, D.C., Panel Ways Decriminalization Marijuana. Take it away. Washington, D.C., Panel Ways Decriminalizing Marijuana. By Ian Simpson. Source, Reuters. The District of Columbia will take a step closer toward decriminalizing marijuana on Wednesday with a move that will make smoking a joint in the U.S. Capitol a violation comparable to a parking ticket. With Washington arresting people for pot possession at a higher rate than any state, a city council panel is set to mark up a bill that would reduce penalties for possessing less than an ounce 28 grams of marijuana to a fine as little as $25. If the bill is passed, Washington would join 15 U.S. states and a handful of cities, including Detroit, that have decriminalized marijuana use, making possession a civil rather than a criminal offense. Decriminalization would hold down police and legal costs and reduce undeniable racial disparities that see blacks far more likely than whites to be arrested for pot, said Tommy Wells, chairman of the Committee on Judiciary and Public Safety, which will make changes to the bill. We have to take action to decriminalize possession of an ounce or less of marijuana and reform our criminal justice system, Wells said in a statement. Passage is likely since nine of 13 council members and Mayor Vincent Gray support the measure. Possession of any amount of marijuana in Washington is currently a misdemeanor carrying up to six months in jail and a $1,000 fine. Decriminalization turns possession into a civil violation very much similar to a traffic ticket, said Eric Altieri, a spokesman for the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Two states, Colorado and Washington, have legalized marijuana. The first ever retail sales of pot for recreational use began in Colorado at the start of the year. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo came out this month in favor of allowing the limited use of medical marijuana for seriously ill patients. Support for decriminalizing marijuana in the shadow of the U.S. Capitol was boosted by an American Civil Liberties Union report showing that blacks in Washington were eight times more likely than non-blacks to be arrested for possession. The June report said that in 2010 the Capitol had a higher pot arrest rate than any state, at 846 arrests per 100,000 people. 
Police made nearly 15 arrests a day at an estimated cost of almost $18 million, it said. The Washington decriminalization law could face scrutiny from Congress, which has constitutional oversight over the Capitol. But Altieri expected little resistance from Congress since lawmakers have not tried to preempt similar measures in other jurisdictions. Also, Congress tends to be more concerned with spending and budget matters involving Washington, and the district could portray decriminalization as a way to cut costs, he said. A spokesman for the House of Representatives Oversight Committee did not respond to a request for comment. Reporting by Ian Simpson. Editing by Scott Malone and Jonathan Otis. Article number 5. Italian City Turin votes in favor of legalizing cannabis. Take it away. Italian City of Turin votes in favor of legalizing cannabis. Source, RT. The City Council of Italian City of Turin has approved a motion in favor of legalizing cannabis on Tuesday, becoming the first major city in the country to make the proposal to allow marijuana to be prescribed for medical reasons. This is a move from a prohibitionist structure to one where soft drugs, particularly cannabis, are legally produced and distributed, appealed the Turin City Council to the Italian Parliament, reports Italian Press. Though the vote doesn't make cannabis legal to consume, by or sell for individual use, it brings a more tolerant view to the drug in the eyes of the law. The vote was narrow, however, as only 15 from the Turin City Council favored the law, while 13 were against and 6 abstained. Center-right politicians and the Catholic wing of the People of Liberty PDL party opposed the measure. Even Turin's mayor Piero Ficino from the center-left Democratic Party, which leads the ruling coalition, abstained from voting. Turin is considered to be the first large city in Italy to speak out about the legalization of so-called light drugs, says Marco Grimaldi from the Democratic Socialist Party SELF, Ecology and Freedom, who proposed the law. We want to put an end to the political prohibition, which has only served to give illegal traffickers hundreds of billions of euros, and thousands of citizens a criminal record, says Grimaldi, reports Torino La Repubblica. The proposal itself consists of two parts. According to its first part, the use of marijuana is permitted for therapeutic and medical purposes. The second part of the proposal overrules the restrictive 2006 Fini Giovinardi law on drugs, which abolishes any distinction between soft and hard drugs and introduces the same penalties for possession use of cannabis and heroin or cocaine. Now this part of the law if approved in the Italian parliament may pave the way for legalization of recreational marijuana use in Italy. The medical use of marijuana has been already allowed in some Italian regions like Liguria, Tuscany and Veneto, but recreational consumption of the drug is still taboo there. In recent years curbs have been easing on the sale of cannabis-based products for medical use across the world. Colorado became the first U.S. state to legalize the recreational use of marijuana and to allow it to be sold in shops beginning this year. Last year France also approved some types of marijuana-based medicine, while Uruguay became the first country to fully legalize the sale and production of the drug, despite global criticism. In the Netherlands, cannabis products are only sold openly in coffee shops. Though cannabis is technically illegal, the country decriminalized possession of less than 5 grams of the substance in 1976. Article number 6. West Virginia lawmakers may be next to consider legal medical marijuana. Take it away. West Virginia lawmakers may be next to consider legal medical marijuana. By Ashley Alman. Source, Huffington Post. A bill legalizing medical marijuana in West Virginia may be introduced this session, the News and Sentinel newspaper reported Monday. While a recent survey of West Virginia voters by liberal-leaning public policy polling revealed majority support for legalizing marijuana for severely ill patients, state lawmakers have expressed mixed sentiments. State Dell. 
John Elamar Wood said this wouldn't be the first time a bill legalizing medical marijuana has been introduced in the state. In the past, he told the News and Sentinel, the wording of the legislation has been too broad, but he's not opposed to looking at whatever is presented. I would want it more limited to the few conditions medical marijuana is valid for, Elam told the newspaper. State Senator Donna Boldy R. Pleasance expressed unwavering opposition to legalizing medical marijuana. We already have enough problems with prescription drugs, Boldy told the News and Sentinel. We would be opening the door for more problems. At the end of December, State Dell. Mike Manapenny D. Taylor announced he intended to introduce a bill that would legalize medical marijuana, his fourth attempt to pass such legislation. We do need to do a lot more research, said Manapenny. But in the meantime, there are a lot of people out there that are suffering with a lot of different diseases that I believe could be treated with this rather than using a pharmaceutical that has 20 different side effects. Article number 7. Marijuana prohibition was racist from the start. Not much has changed. Take it away. Marijuana prohibition was racist from the start. Not much has changed. By Nick Ling. Source, The Huffington Post. As the nation's nearly 80-year history of pot prohibition slowly begins to crumble, starting with Colorado's recent implementation of taxed and legalized recreational marijuana, critics of the increasingly popular policy shift are jumping to denounce the move. A number of white pundits and newspaper columnists have been among the most vocal, claiming that marijuana must remain illegal despite their own prior use of it, because it supposedly makes people dumber. The columns themselves serve as the most persuasive evidence of that point. And while such a correlation between pot use and intelligence has yet to be proven, one must be willing to ignore the racist roots of marijuana prohibition in the manner in which this unjust system of anti-drug enforcement still plays out today to make such a shallow argument in the first place. In a column for The Fix, Maya Shalavitz reminds us that Harry Anslinger, the father of the war on weed, fully embraced racism as a tool to demonize marijuana. As the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, a predecessor to the Drug Enforcement Administration, Anslinger institutionalized his belief that pot's effect on the degenerate races made its prohibition a top priority. Here are just a few of his most famous and most racist quotes. Between Anslinger's ruminations on the need to keep marijuana away from minorities, especially the entertainers, were countless other fabrications about the health effects of pot. It was more dangerous than heroin or cocaine and leads to pacifism and communist brainwashing, he claimed. If the hideous monster Frankenstein came face to face with marijuana, he would drop dead of fright, Anslinger declared in a line that underscored the type of extreme anti-marijuana hysteria that served as a catalyst for the 1936 propaganda film Reefer Madness. Anslinger was also a liar. As the drug war got going in the early 20th century, the Bureau published surveys showing its efforts to combat drug use had led to dramatic declines over the decade of the 1920s. But drug historian David Courtright, through a Freedom of Information Act request, got his hands on the actual surveys and found the data to have been fabricated. He also found a private memo from Anslinger admitting the numbers were made up. Nevertheless, Anslinger used that success to argue for an expansion of the drug war to weed in 1937. The incident is covered in the book This Is Your Country on Drugs by HuffPost's Ryan Grimm. Meanwhile, states throughout the South began implementing drug laws as part of the explicitly racist Jim Crow system, with Southern lawmakers being quite open about the racist motivations behind the laws. Sure, this was more than 75 years ago, but how much has actually changed today? The feds have stripped Anslinger's offensive language from their official mission statements, but we are left with anti-drug policies that are hardly less racist in their application. According to a 2013 study by the American Civil Liberties Union, 
blacks across the nation were nearly four times more likely than whites to be arrested on charges of marijuana possession in 2010, despite data that suggested they used the drug at about the same rate. In some states, blacks were up to six times more likely to be arrested. This disparity isn't new, and plays into broader arrest data. A study published in the journal Crime and Delinquency this month found that by the age of 23, nearly 50% of black males have been arrested, compared to 44% of Hispanic males and 38% of white males. In all, around 750,000 people are arrested for marijuana each year, with more than 650,000 of them for possession alone. The U.S., of course, incarcerates a higher percentage of its population than any other nation in the world. As Tressie McMillan Cottom writes in Slate, these commonplace arrests for simple marijuana possession have rippling effects, especially in minority communities. Anyone convicted of possession or sale of a controlled substance under federal or state law forfeits their eligibility for any federal grant, loan, or work assistance, meaning that a demiwa could cost a hopeful teen his shot at an affordable higher education. And though the anti-marijuana hyperbole of the reefer madness era may no longer be believable today, our current anti-drug policies remain bolstered by arguments that have little, if any, factual basis. According to federal authorities, marijuana fully deserves its current standing as a Schedule I substance, alongside heroin, LSD, ecstasy and a fear and loathing in Las Vegas length list of inorganic dimes, mines, dolls and eights. By definition, then, the government considers marijuana to have no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. It is among the most dangerous drugs of all with potentially severe psychological or physical dependence. Opponents regularly cherry-pick studies that support these conclusions about weed, while simultaneously ignoring others that may counter them, or at least lead to further questions about whether marijuana is accurately scheduled. Anti-pop crusaders also stubbornly insist that it is a gateway drug, despite countless studies that have been unable to prove any direct causation between using weed and trying harder drugs. Regardless of what individual studies have found, the fact of the matter is that the federal ban on marijuana has discouraged the type and volume of research that will likely need to be done before any absolute conclusions can be made about weed. Until then, very little is certain, except for the racial undertones of the war on pot. Alright listeners, that's all I have for this episode. Till next episode, have a good day, good night, good week, bye bye. We pollinated your minds. Now, go pollinate the world.